I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. On today's Sponsored Insight, we'll discuss another empty room, an opportunity ignored by most investors because they either don't want to or can't participate. It's real estate NPLs in New York City, a niche opportunity requiring a high degree of specialized expertise. My guest on today's show is Ted Martell, the co-founder of Maverick Real Estate Partners, the leading investor in commercial real estate NPLs and distressed loans in the New York City market. Maverick manages $500 million focusing on the specialty since its launch in 2010. Our conversation covers Ted and David Avaram's path to bootstrapping the business, the nature of the opportunity, and the blend of data science and analysis that makes it work. We also discussed the wide-open landscape of opportunities on the horizon in the New York City commercial market. Before we get going, there's a lot of serious heavy stuff happening in the world. Without making light of any of it, these spread the words are intentionally just the opposite. They're my attempt to provide a little comic relief in what can be a very difficult world. So this week, I thought I'd talk about another travesty of sorts. The World Series finished up last week with the Texas Rangers defeating the Arizona Diamondbacks. In case you missed the whole thing, yeah, that's called parody in Major League Baseball. These underdogs not only weren't the New York Yankees, they weren't even portfolio companies of my favorite and most passionate investment in Arctos Sports Partners. Adding insult to injury, both teams actually beat an Arctos portfolio company in Game 7 of their League Championship Series, and there would have been just a little more money in it, well, for me. And last week, just when you thought it couldn't get worse, the world-famous New Zealand All Blacks had a heartbreaking loss in the finals of the Rugby World Cup. So when all your expected sports results fall by the wayside, I suggest you clear your mind with a riveting edition of, you guessed it, the Capital Allocators podcast. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Ted Martell. Ted, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ted. Why don't you take me back to the beginning, wherever that starts for you in the path to starting this business? I grew up on the South Shore of Long Island with a family of musicians. My parents were from Northern Minnesota, moved to New York after they graduated college and got married because my dad had to fulfill his ROTC requirement and joined the army band. And he was stationed in Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. And so they both became teachers ultimately. My dad was a high school orchestra director and my mom was a elementary music school teacher. And so music and education in my family were extremely important. What was that like growing up with two musicians? It was challenging. My parents were my music teachers. There was an expectation around practicing 
they instilled in me the quality that you should practice daily, that you should perform repetitions. As I grew older, I was more interested in athletics than I was music. And I think that was difficult for them to understand. How could they possibly have an athlete as a child? I continued with music through high school and sports. I played soccer and lacrosse. I was the kid that went late to practice because I had orchestra rehearsal. And I was the kid that went late to jazz band because I had a game. And so I was constantly juggling these two disciplines. And while my parents saw them as extremely different, I saw them as extremely related, certainly in retrospect. Practicing or repetitions, just as important in sports as in music. Being part of a team and collaborating with people, just as important in sports and music. Making sure that you're aligned with each other, sports and music, the same. And so after high school, I went to Princeton University where I studied architecture. And architecture for me really touched on a lot of the things that I had grown to love as a student, using my analytical and creative skills together to design solutions to problems and then create visual representations of them, generally around the built environment. I was fortunate to also be a lacrosse player in college. And here again, I was juggling two extremes, explaining to my teammates and my coach why I was late to practice because I was in architecture studio or explaining why I was missing an architecture studio event or why I wasn't there all weekend working on my project because I had games and practice. It was very difficult and challenging to organize, but both were extremely important to me. I had to figure out how to reconcile those things, particularly because the lacrosse team at Princeton was extremely successful. While I was there, we won three national championships my freshman, sophomore, and junior year. I was an active player on the team. And I think some of that experience has been really influential on some of the things we've done at Maverick today and on my business career as a whole. Whether it's sports, music, and then architecture, there's this artistic quality in what you're doing. And I'm curious how you expressed that once you left college. It's a very good question, and it's something I struggled with along the way. My first job out of college was working in construction as a site super, a project manager, and a project executive. Pretty non-traditional path for a Princeton grad, and very mechanical in nature. You're managing projects. You're doing a lot of analysis. The creativity there comes in finding better ways or cheaper ways of building, but it felt like there was a gap. And so after a couple of years of working in the construction industry, I really wanted to understand the capital behind the projects. So I went back to business school. My plan was to become a real estate developer so that I could apply that creative side of my brain to the business. And that's what I did post-business school. I worked for a few different real estate developers managing the construction design and financing of projects. How did you find your way into development out of business school? So most people go to business school, in my mind, for one of three reasons. It's to learn something, to meet people, or to climb the corporate ladder. For me, I really wanted to go learn something. I've always been very driven by this curiosity and this desire to learn. I wanted to understand capital flows and real estate and buildings and how it all worked. Turned out that was also a great place to meet people. That's where I met David Aviram, who's my 50-50 partner in Maverick. We've been business partners since 2010. 
We started out as friends in business school and at happy hours, we talk about our entrepreneurial ideas and how we wanted to run our own real estate business one day. We looked at opportunities together, but post business school, we both took jobs at firms. We were building our lives. We got married. From time to time, we would look at opportunities together, but generally we had jobs. I was working in real estate development. Dave was working in real estate investment sales at East Dill Secured. And we continued down those paths, watched each other, got married, went to each other's weddings, enjoyed New York City. And the global financial crisis hit in 2008. We knew that there had to be a tremendous amount of opportunity in the marketplace. And those entrepreneurial ideas or those seeds that we planted back in business school, they started reappearing in our minds. And we decided to quit our jobs and start Maverick full-time. What was it like for you guys taking that leap? It's a little bit scary. You're giving up good jobs. You're giving up certainty of income. It's also extremely exciting. I was working for a real estate developer. There was no capital available in the market to build anything. And so I wasn't really working on anything meaningful at the time. And that bothered me more than anything. My wife and I were expecting our first child. And I asked her, what do you think? And she said, well, if you don't do this now, it's going to be a lot harder down the road once we have our first son. And so I told Dave I was expecting a child with my wife. He said, let's do it. I said, I don't know where this road's going to lead, but we've got to make some money and we've got to do it quickly. What did you decide to do? We found some office space. It was one room and we started going there every day of the week. We felt that it was important to be together. There was a lot of broad confusion still two years into the global financial crisis as to what real estate was worth, where the opportunity was. After a few months, we settled on non-performing loans. We knew that there were a bunch of broken projects all over New York City, and we started trying to call lenders to see if we could buy the debt. And we were a fundless sponsor, and we really started focusing on data. Dave's experience before working at East Dill Secured was at Bloomberg, and he understood the power of data, and we both understood how technologically behind real estate was. And there was a tremendous amount of information becoming more available. What was the first break you had in terms of either an opportunity on the investment side or capital to fund it that made it begin to work? Our first break was a call to a banker who invited us into his office. And he saw us as industrious, entrepreneurial guys. And as we were leaving the meeting, we had a nice discussion with him for about an hour. He threw an appraisal at us, literally threw it to me, and I caught it and said, tell me what you think about this. And we went back to our office fast and furiously trying to figure out what the situation was. And it was a loan secured by almost a full city block of land in a good area of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The default rate of interest on the loan was 24%. It had been in default for two years. And we perceived the loan to value on the property to be about 40%. So a very well secured loan with lots of accrued default interest. And we immediately called some of the private equity managers that we had been talking to and said, hey, we've got this situation. We want to take a look at it. What do you guys think? And we got to work at underwriting it and putting an investment memo together for it. What happened with that deal? We closed it. That first transaction paid off in the first three months. We made about a 1.3 multiple. So we were into the carried interest. Dave and I made some money. We took a deep breath and we said, now what? On the second transaction that we did, we bought a loan secured by a hotel under construction on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. There was a mechanics lien sandwiched in the middle of the capital stack. 
we ended up negotiating with the construction company that had the mechanics lien and bought it for 50 cents on the dollar. And the light bulbs went on right there. And we said, how do we find a record of every mechanics lien on every property in New York City? And we quickly found out where they were recorded. You had to go to the county clerk's office, 60 Center Street in downtown. Underneath the courts is the clerk's office. And down there was a green screen computer and you could print out mechanics liens one by one. And we printed out every mechanics liens that was over $100,000. And then we collated them, scanned them. We sent them to an outsourcing firm in India who put them all into a spreadsheet for us. And we had our first data-driven sourcing spreadsheet. What happened once you had that data set? Dave and I got to work making phone calls. We called the lenders on which these mechanics liens were recorded. And we said, hey, we noticed that there's a mechanics lien recorded on your property in which you've lent money. We're interested in buying the loan. Many times they did not know about it. Sometimes they said, don't worry about it. We know all about it. It's not a problem. But hey, take a look at this other opportunity I have. And we learned how to systematically call people to do outreach to find these opportunities. We recorded our progress, we followed up, and we were able to generate a real stream of deal flow using this data. Around the same time, we started raising discretionary capital. We lost a lot of transactions along the way because we didn't have money. Buying non-performing loans requires you to have capital and the ability to move quickly. These transactions can close in as quickly as five days. But lenders want certainty of closure and they want to know that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. We needed capital. We raised our first fund from friends and family and we're extremely successful with that first fund. That investor group introduced us to other investors and we kept going down this road over the years. We're presently investing out of our sixth private equity style fund which has about $317 million in commitments. And 80% of that capital is institutional, limited partners, foundations, endowments, and pensions. In the meantime, we've really doubled down on data and building out systems in order to achieve our goals. So as you've gone from that first fund to the most recent one, how have you articulated your strategy? Maverick buys non-performing loans secured by real estate in New York City. We make money by buying those loans at a discount to the underlying collateral value and then encouraging repayment from the borrowers. The profit is made up of any discount to the principal balance that we are able to negotiate with the lenders, as well as the collection of accrued default and contract interest plus fees. So if we break down that process, you started with this mechanic liens database. How do you think about where you're going to find these opportunities to buy the loans? Today, we are ingesting many publicly available data sets. These data sets come in different forms and formats. They come from city, state, federal level. And we are first cleaning that data as we ingest it. And then we are connecting that data through similar fields. And so this process has yielded a very sophisticated data resource and team that can develop leads for our sourcing team to identify opportunities, as well as market knowledge that can help us underwrite and think about how we are doing. So as you run through all these data sets and work through these screens, what is it that you look at when you come in on a Monday morning to say, oh, here are the potential opportunities we want to go try to source directly? Our sourcing team is given lead lists that are generated by data strategy. And these lead lists 
are organized by these indicators of distress. And the sourcing team is going through these lead lists one at a time, making their phone calls, doing their outreach and sourcing opportunities. They're calling banks, they're calling private lenders. Naturally, after doing 185 of these transactions, we've also built some relationships. Maverick has become the number one buyer of non-performing loans secured by real estate in New York City. And we get inbounds regularly. We have banks and private lenders calling us and asking us to tell them what we think about a given loan opportunity. What would we pay for it? What is the sweet spot of the non-performing loan you're looking to buy look like structurally? Our average loan size is $7 million. The majority of the loans that we're buying are 2 to $20 million, that middle market space. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity for us to play in it because it's complicated, because the material is complex, and because there's not a lot of other capital pursuing those opportunities, not in a systematic way the way we are at Maverick. The loan we're looking to buy is that the underlying collateral has cash flow, that it's an extremely liquid property, meaning there's lots of demand for it, so it should be very financeable. I think those are primary on the collateral side. From the loan side, the lower the LTV, the better, because that encourages that fast payoff. If you think about the loans that we buy, a loan that is, say, 20% LTV has a lot more equity for a borrower to refinance the property and pay us off. Naturally, those aren't the ones that tend to be <laughs> in default. It's the ones that are much closer towards that 70% edge, but those are the things we're looking for. What does that diligence process look like to see if it's a transaction you want to undertake? Due diligence includes reviewing the credit file, legal review internally and externally. We have legal staff on the team, ordering a fresh title report, collateral valuation, the credit or loan valuation, as well as a guarantor analysis, and ultimately a site visit before we close on the transaction. How do you go about pricing these? So our mandate is to deliver high teens net returns to our LPs. So we're underwriting the collateral and we're underwriting the loan documents. These are non-performing loans. So updated rent rolls, expenses, problems, things of that nature are not necessarily provided to the bank. So they can't necessarily give them to us. But we are looking at collateral valuation in a number of ways. We're looking at discounted cash flow analysis, comparable sales analysis. We're looking at old appraisals in the credit file. We're calling brokers and getting broker opinions of value. And we're using these different data points to triangulate to some sort of valuation on the underlying collateral. Once we get comfortable as to where we think from a conservative basis value is, that goes into our loan underwriting model. The loan underwriting model generates a series of probability-weighted cash flows based on a series of qualitative and quantitative inputs into the model. How competitive is it once you've determined there's a loan that you want to put an offer onto in going from that to acquiring the loan? I would say it depends. There are many transactions that we do directly with banks and private lenders where there is no broker or, or middleman marketing the loan. So those, I would say, are not competitive. I would say that's the majority of the transactions we've closed, where we have identified the distress, we've contacted the banker, and we've bought the loan. That is more typical in a healthy market, where it's a good loan gone bad, meaning LTV is good and you can pay up to the principal balance of the loan. Today, we're in a very distressed market. We have rising interest rates, inflationary pressures on expenses, decreasing cap rates, general uncertainty around valuation, in certain asset classes, demand questions. And 
loans and their values are far more uncertain. And so what we've been experiencing in the market for the past 12 months, and really even further than that, going back to the beginning of interest rate hikes, is a bid-ask gap in the market. And so we've never been busier underwriting or looking at opportunities, but we are not closing a lot of transactions. So when you do purchase one of these loans, they're non-performing by mandate. What happens in your process once you've acquired the loan to try to collect more than had been collected before? We use two means to encourage repayment by borrowers. Number one is to reach out to them and talk to them to try to understand what their perspective of their situation is and what their plan is to repay us. Number two is all of our remedies that are within the loan documents and exercising them. And we have found that over time, that deploying both of these things at the same time is the most successful means towards facilitating a fast resolution. In other words, you're talking to them, but you're also enforcing your legal remedies. How does that go? You can imagine you're reaching out to someone who is already in some distress and you're the new kid on the block who now owns this loan. Feels a little sharp elbowed to also be doing this legal process at the same time. That can be a difficult discussion, but these are commercial borrowers. These are borrowers who are using leverage as a tool to generate a return who have gotten a little bit over their skis. Most of them are rational players who understand the position they're in, who are willing to have a rational discussion and seek a quick resolution with us. So those conversations are fine. They're very clear. They're very direct. The rules of the road are laid out before everyone and everyone operates as they see fit. What do you find that's different when you step in to make that call than what the prior owner of that note might have? A big difference between us and say a bank or even a private lender is that we're not in the business of lending. Banks and private lenders are in the business of lending and being good lenders and working with their borrowers. When they are selling us the loans, it's kind of the last stop. The bank or private lender has decided to terminate that relationship. When we've stepped in, we're not looking to make a relationship. We're looking to resolve a problem. I think Maverick has developed a reputation as being tough but fair in the marketplace. And I think borrowers many times will abuse that relationship with their banks how do you think about your exit strategy? So when we think about it from an underwriting perspective, the short-term resolutions tend to be very high IRR, lowish multiple, whereas the longer term are higher multiple, lower IRR. And lower IRR tends to be that high single digits. And so we're really trying to stay in that first bucket. We want fast resolutions. And so we work very hard with our borrowers to find ways to exit quickly. We're very happy to get that higher IRR, lowish multiple, and then to redeploy the capital again. The deal flow and the pipeline are plentiful, and we see that as being a great outcome for our limited partners. How do you think about in your holding when it comes time to potentially have to take back the keys and own the properties? So we don't actively seek to own the properties. If we end up owning the properties, there's really significant friction cost on the transaction due to transfer taxes at broker fees and carrying costs. And so we've found historically that you're better off settling with the borrower before it comes to that. We are willing to take back the keys and we've done so about 10% of the time that we've made investments in non-performing loans. And so we've taken back the keys about 20 buildings. We presently own about four properties. And we seek to sell them immediately through a broadly marketed process. 
Occasionally, there are small things to do to those properties to clean them up to maximize price, but we're generally not seeking to take on ownership or development risk. We don't find that that is the risk that our limited partners are looking for, and we don't think it's risk that's appropriate for us to take on. There's somebody out there that's better at doing that than us. What we're great at is finding complex situations where loans are in default and realizing the value from the loan side. How do you think about as you're negotiating with an owner, you need to be able to have the stick of taking on that building, but at the same time, you ultimately would prefer not to for the reasons you just said? I think we proceed full force to take back the keys, despite the fact that it's not an outcome that we want. When we think about the stick and litigation, we don't stop. We don't let up. It would be perceived as a weakness. And it's important for us to push from that side hard. We think about any settlement discussions that are on the table from a very rational perspective and an analytical perspective to determine, is this actually the economically best decision to take it back? And so it's really about making the decision if something's on the table, as opposed to, I don't really want to take this back. What team do you have in place to conduct all of these different aspects of the process? Today, we are a team of 20 people. We're divided up into three different groups. There's data strategy. There's the investments team, which is managing the sourcing and the asset management of our deals. And then there's the finance team. As David, you have grown this organization from just the two of you to what it is today. What is it about your partnership that's made that work? So when I think about partnership, I think about alignment. David and I are 50-50 partners. We're extremely aligned. We have equal decision-making. We have the same level of capital invested in all of our deals and vehicles. And I think that first five years in business, we learned a lot about what that really means. It was just Dave and I in a room trying to figure out what we're doing, trying to figure out how to do it better as we uncovered it. And it required a certain way of being, of being very transparent with each other, being very direct, providing feedback as to how we are doing. We knew very early on that we were committing towards a long-term relationship and we wanted our decisions to be aligned for the long-term. And that's really how we thought about our partnership. But I think that partnership extends beyond just David and I to how we interact with our other partners. And by other partners, I mean our limited partners, I mean our employees, I mean our third-party service providers. In effect, we're all in this together. And I think you have to think about alignment when you're thinking about partnership goals. When you think about the LPs, you have to think about the vehicles and the term of those funds. They're long-term vehicles. They're long-term relationships. The LPs have long-term causes that they want to fund. And so we approach our LPs in very much the way we approach our own partnership by being extremely transparent, being extremely direct with each other. We align our employees with our LPs as well through the way we compensate them. And I think it's pretty unique. A lot of firms in the real estate space have more of an eat what you kill structure, but we've decided we don't want to pay bonuses to employees at all. Instead, we pay them a high base salary and their comp exceeds market comp. And they have the ability to invest in the funds as well as to receive carried interest based on what we award them. And that aligns our employees with not just David and I, but also with our LPs. So that investment decision-making is all aligned for everybody. For the employees, 
They also get unlimited vacation for what it's worth. But for all that, they have got to be great. And we manage it through a 360-degree review process that we use here at Maverick, as well as the objectives and key results. So to get there, there are always frictions, bumps in the roads in a partnership. And I'm curious what you learned about each other getting to that place where you deeply understand each other and feel aligned. Look, I think some of that's experience and time. We've been doing this for almost 14 years, and we've learned a lot about each other. But I think what we figured out is that by being transparent, by airing our differences as they come up and doing it out loud, we can really find resolution on disagreements. Many people worry about 50-50 partnerships when you have a deadlock. Well, if you have deadlock, you can't proceed. And so you need to figure out a way to solve that problem. And so in the early days, we would talk about it very calmly. You have to check your ego at the door. If we couldn't get there logically and find the right answer to the solution, we'd seek advice from others. And that could come from our wives or other family members. We would share that feedback. Over time, it became LPs. We publicly air things that we're not aligned on to the team all the time. And we value their feedback and input. And we always get to a good rational decision. And I think that deadlock is actually a tremendous benefit because it forces discussion and forces alignment. What is it that you think makes it harder for people to come compete with you in this space? So our data is our most important competitive advantage. We've been building Maverick's data warehouse for over 10 years now. We've spent millions of dollars on it. It's been extremely difficult to build that system. And over the past few years, we've pivoted towards bringing it back in-house because we see it as the most important thing we do. And it's not just about cleaning and collecting data. It's about knowing what questions to ask the data. It's about domain expertise. It's about experience with non-performing loans that we have been involved in and been in the weeds in, whether we're down at the clerk's office actually printing out the files or identifying a new data point that's really important on a situation that we experience and reverse engineering it. You can't just spend money to build that. There's a certain amount of time and effort that is necessary along with the right people to build a system like this. And I think we have real edge there. It's also not a system that is done. It's a system that we continue building always. It's constant evolution, constant change. Have you thought about the whole world of Gen AI in looking at your data? So we've had some recent evolutions in how we're working using some of the Gen AI and chat GPT or large language model type software. We're looking at a very large portfolio of loans and we are able to build a large language model that actually ingests the loan documents and pulls terms from those loan documents and puts them into a spreadsheet. It's able to do that at a rate that is superior to what a human can do and at a scale that no human could do. And so we see that as having tremendous opportunity for us as we go forward. Our data includes lots of documents that we've ingested from the city, from the state. These are documents that are publicly available and there is information inside them 
the ability to analyze them on a broad basis for terms, for information, I think will generate substantial information edge for us. How do you think about bigger players competing with you? Think about large real estate players in the city coming into the space. So our average transaction size is $7 million. That keeps a lot of the larger players out of our space. It's too complicated and too much work for them to get involved. They do show up once the deals start getting larger. I think that they don't have the systems and resources that we do to analyze these things to the same level. I think we saw after the global financial crisis, the larger private equity fund managers who were investing in non-performing loans left because there wasn't enough opportunity there for them anymore. We stayed and got better at it. They're returning. We're hearing about them looking at opportunities. There's also tourists in the space, people that haven't been there before, that don't understand what they're doing. And I think there's plenty of opportunity in the market for us. I think we're one of the most credible players in the market. I think lenders have transacted with us for that reason. We've transacted with over 100 different lenders since we've started the business. And so if they want to overpay to win opportunities, they will do so. And in some cases, maybe they get lucky and win, and in others, they won't. But we'll continue sticking to our standard of underwriting and analysis. I'd love to turn to this focus on New York City. Certainly coming out of COVID, there have been big questions about what the commercial market will look like going forward. We'd love to hear your perspective on what's happening in the market. There's over a million properties in New York City, over a thousand lenders, currently over 600 billion of active debt secured by real estate in New York City. It is a huge market. It's also an incredibly liquid market. There's been this COVID dynamic of work from home and a little more flexibility than there used to be. How is that impacting the commercial operators in the city? Really, that's affecting the office owners. We actually own no debt secured by office in New York City. We find valuing office to be extremely challenging today for the obvious demand reasons that you're asking me about. Anecdotally, what I can tell you is that every day I feel like more people are coming to the city. Dave and I ride the train in together from Connecticut every day. And every day it gets more and more difficult to find two seats next to each other. You feel it at lunchtime. You feel it continuously. It does feel like there is a rebound towards returning to office, returning to work. Friends of mine from where I live in the beginning said, I'm never going back to work again. It's over. And then that shifted to one day a week. And now the conversations you hear is, I hope I can hold on to my Fridays. What we found is that we like being together. We like to collaborate. Those two years of COVID, while extremely productive for Maverick, were extraordinarily lonely. You spend more time with your work colleagues than you do even with your family. Hopefully you like them. Hopefully you enjoy what you do. And I think that's how people are. And I think that's how people are most productive. When you take office out of the equation, what's the composition of your portfolios by type look like today? The vast majority is multifamily. It's about 60%. And that's pretty constant over the years since we've been doing the business. And I think there's two reasons for that. Number one, that's there's the most of it in New York. Most buildings are multifamily, especially in the middle market, which is the space in which we operate. The rest of it is split up between industrial, there is some hospitality, and a little bit of retail, but not very much. So I'd love to dive into some of those property types. We start with multifamily. What are you seeing where opportunities lie in the city today? So there are 
always problems just because of the nature of the market. But specifically today, the opportunity set you're seeing is people that borrowed money at three or 4% over the past five to seven years, who now need to refinance at seven to 8%. And those loans are coming due. They're going to need to be refinanced. And these owners are either going to have to come up with fresh cash equity, or they're going to have a problem on their hands. And I suspect there will be a combination of solutions to these problems. So I think the opportunities that we're seeing are people that don't have the liquidity or the ability to come up with additional cash. How do you think about projecting out when some of these loans come due? We've just had this spike in rates over the last 12, 18 months. If you graph out lending activity over the past 20 years, we've experienced an extremely precipitous drop since the start of the rate hikes. And we're over 50% below where we were before rates started getting hiked. And so the market's really frozen. Nobody's lending capital. We've seen precipitous rate drops before only twice in the past 20 years. One was the global financial crisis and the other was the start of COVID. So these are two other periods of time where there's vast uncertainty in the real estate market. Obviously, the real significant difference between today and those other two times is that rates were low and were dropped lower in those environments to encourage lending. When you're going into the market, there's pretty wide bid-ask spreads today as some of these loans are under stress. How do you navigate that? We're very comfortable being patient. We have substantial dry powder to put to work. We are not going to overpay for these loans just to put our capital out. We make our offers. We explain them to the sellers. They may agree or disagree. They may have different incentives as to whether or not they should actually sell. But we will wait until pricing hits a point that we think is appropriate to generate the returns that we're offering to our limited partners. So when you take that to your existing portfolio, the interest rate dynamics have to affect the loans you already had in place as well. So what are you seeing within your portfolio? So naturally, with real estate values dropping, we have to remark our positions. We've taken some hits across our portfolio. I would say for the existing funds, those hits tend to be about two to 300 basis points on returns, net returns to LPs. We're still generating a 10 plus net return to our LPs. What do you see currently as some of the biggest risks in the market? I think about a lot are really interest rate risks and how that will impact duration. I think there's so much uncertainty around what the Fed will do next. How long will rates remain high? Is this, in fact, the new normal and that money will actually cost something again? And how we think about that from an underwriting perspective is really important as we look at new opportunities. I think there's a natural desire to just assume that they'll go back to where they were and they'll stay low forever again. I think from an underwriting perspective, we really think about them staying up and staying up for a long time. What's your biggest bottleneck moving forward? The bid-ask spread is really holding things up right now. You can see these loans building up on the balance sheets of the banks. We know that the loans generally are not trading. So when Maverick makes an offer, it's not that the other side is selling it to somebody else. They're holding it. And something needs to break. There needs to be some sort of catalyst that forces banks and private lenders to begin transacting. I think some of that is just a little more certainty in the market about what things are worth. 
banks and private lenders need to remark their positions. In order to do that, they need to go get appraisals. They need to have credit committee meetings and they need to agree on where they should mark those positions. Then they can proceed to selling them. That takes a while. It's also painful work and it's not exactly what everybody wants to do right now. And I think there's a little bit of hoping it all goes away. I think we don't think it all goes away. We think it has to be resolved. And so until banks and private lenders remark their positions, until there is more pressure on them to clean up their balance sheets so that they can make new loans and do what their core business is, I think this bottleneck will continue. What do you think the scale of your investment activities can be over the next five years, let's say once we pass this bid ask spread bottleneck? It's definitely billions of dollars. I believe this is the opportunity of our careers. And we're really excited about the opportunity set. I think there's more questions about when it will start to move, when transactions will start to happen again. What are those signposts that you're looking for to see when now is really the time to be able to deploy capital? We're making offers. We are getting some transactions done. It has been picking up. We also have an existing portfolio of loans and some REO where we've taken back the keys that we are seeking to sell. And we're seeing more transaction volume on that side as well. Ted, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions before I let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I really love ambitious projects that solve problems and get my hands dirty. One example of what a project looks like to me is a few years ago, I bought a 1963 Vespa to ride on my commute to the train station. And it turned out to be a lemon. <laughs> I don't know anything about small motorcycles. On top of it being a lemon, it was really loud and it exhausted a ton of smoke. That's not good for the environment. Noise isn't good for my neighbors early in the morning when I'm commuting to the train and I needed a solution. So I got the idea to convert it to being an all electric vehicle and I figured it out. It took me about four months. I spent a lot of time in blogs and chat rooms and ordering books. This was no small challenge. It really combined everything I love, which is solving problems, designing solutions, and then actually executing on those solutions. What happened with the Vespa? It works. I can ride <laughs> to the train station. It's really eye-turning when you see someone on a vintage vehicle ride off in silence. It's extremely fast, which it doesn't need to be. The whole idea of riding on a Vespa is not going fast, but enjoying the ride. And so it's a lot of fun. What's one fact that most people don't know about you? I played the bassoon as a child. That was the instrument. Well, I played the bassoon, the saxophone, and the piano. The saxophone and the piano are less exciting to people than the bassoon, the bassoon being more of an odd or unknown instrument. Interesting fact around me playing the bassoon, as I met my wife in college, we actually both played the bassoon as children. What's your biggest pet peeve? One of my pet peeves is people who don't put the grocery cart away at the shopping center. It really bothers me. I understand why it happens. You've been shopping, you're tired, maybe you have kids with you. You have to go home and put the food away. It's exhausting. But I think if we all just put the shopping cart away, the world's a better place. I mean that literally and metaphorically. So put the shopping cart away. How about on the investment side? Investment pet peeve is inability to present an opportunity clearly. I think if you can't sum it up in a few sentences, 
that's probably not an interesting opportunity. I think it's a skill that can be learned. We work really hard with our analysts to do that, to crystallize their thoughts. But when it takes five minutes to understand what you're even talking about, it really drives me crazy. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Well, aside from my immediate family and my extended family through my wife's side, I'm very grateful to them. They've all been very helpful and supportive to me. I think the easy answer there is Dave. Dave is my 50-50 partner. We've built this company from the ground up together. That's not easy. That requires a lot of patience, a lot of open-mindedness, a willingness to think independently and create. Dave's ability to do those two things is absolutely incredible. I think we brought really diverse experiences to Maverick, and I think we respect each other and find benefit in those experiences. We learn every day and have since we started this firm for 14 years. And I think that's super exciting and it's super fun. And I think Dave, no doubt, has had the most impact on my professional life and career as we've done this for the past 13 years. How about a second one? Second one would be Dana Craver. Dana Craver runs a firm called Landseer. Landseer was our first institutional capital. They took a real bet on us that we could really institutionalize our investment processes. And they've been instrumental in helping us think about how we make portfolio investment decisions. All of that probabilistic underwriting that we do was driven by them pushing us. We used to really think about things in like three different scenarios that were disconnected and isolated. And we insisted for months that this was the right way to do it until we really started listening. And they've just been really instrumental in our growth. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received was don't forget to enjoy it. That was from my father. And it was a long time ago. I was a teenager and I was laying in bed, going to sleep. And he came in my bedroom just to say goodnight and tell me that he loves me. And he asked me a few questions about school. I don't even remember the nature of that discussion. But as he was leaving, he said, Ted, don't forget to enjoy it. And I don't think I really understood what he meant by that at the moment. But I think he was referring to really about the process and enjoying the journey, enjoying the road as much as the destination. All right, Ted, one more for you. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think this relates to that advice, but happiness is not the result of achievement. I think achievement is just a milestone. I've had this really incredible trajectory in my life where I got to go to Princeton and I got to go to Columbia and I've started my own business and I've got a beautiful family with three little kids. I was always clawing my way through it, trying to get there, trying to get to the next thing. And I think I've learned as I've gotten older that it's just as much about process and the people you're working with. Ted, thanks so much for sharing this story about what you guys are doing in the New York real estate market. Thanks for having me, Ted. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at capitalallocators.com to apply for one of the slots. 